welcome back to Dialogue Wheel. I know it's been a while since I've spoken with you. I'm Andy Burkowski from VGS, the radio show turned YouTube channel turned radio show once again. Dialogue Wheel is changing. I originally wanted this segment to be about two individuals fiercely debating topics in the video game industry. I don't think that's now a valuable practice. Now I want to learn, I want to highlight members of this vast community, and I want you to gain something from the hour experience that you spend with me. Today I want to learn more about how we see video games, how we understand them through the lens of journalism. What is really video game journalism? Today we have Patrick Klempik, senior reporter at Waypoints, formerly of Kutaku and Giant Bomb, a leading voice in the video game industry. Last time we spoke, it was several years ago, Patrick, and you were kind of in the midst of the Gamergate saga. How was that experience for you now looking back, realizing that, you know, you weren't murdered and, and that didn't happen? How was that experience? I think it was a pretty transformative, uh, traumatic, uh, uh, interesting, sad. I mean, there's a lot of uh, personal takeaways I have sort of internalized from that time period. And I think it's important to note that uh, while stuff, Gamergate as a term sort of has faded from the headlines and, and that like specific movement or motivating force for that movement at that particular time has, has sort of dissipated that, uh, you know, the undercurrents of that I think are still felt reverberated i think there are a lot of parallels between uh a lot of the instigating and mobilizing and uh sort of tensions that undergirded gamergate that we have seen you know in the election of donald trump in uh you know there was a whole separate comics gate um you know the the idea that sort of like social and cultural tensions uh flaring up and a certain conservatism in in those tensions uh, resulting in aggression towards certain voices and, and certain movements. Um, that is, th th that was never exclusive to video games, but it kind of got a name under under Gamergate. Um, and, but it is it is definitely found its way um, into the mainstream in a way that is horribly distressing. But uh, if, it, it, you know, it, I do think there is use in the fact that uh, there was a name for it, there was something you can go back and study, um, and maybe uh, it's helping to provide some useful tools and, and observations going forward. Mentioning that it isn't as identifiable in the video game community as perhaps it once was, do you think that this kind of insidious uh, need to oppress certain viewpoints is more dangerous now because it is in some ways more subversive and, and more accepted generally, especially in the United States of what's happening politically there? Oh yeah, I, well, I would argue that it's it's a lot more dangerous than it yeah. was in years past. Um, you know, it's it's one thing to have um, a movement that is finding its energy in different corners of the internet, allowing them to mobilize and uh, sort of find one another and find a collective strength that was just not possible um, in the earlier internet um, and 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 especially pre-internet. But you know, it is a certainly a different world in which you know you know you know here in America we're dealing with you know. You know Donald Trump. You know, sort of normalizing uh, and 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 championing certain elements of racism and white nationalism, and uh, that is emboldening all sorts of people in which uh, previously uh, certain types of rhetoric were uh, at least you knew better than to say mm -hmm. in public, even if you had pri privately held views. Um, 
that is now going mainstream in a really uh, dis- distressing way that is is finding its way into all sorts of um, different parts of society. I think if if you're struggling to understand what's happening, if you were go back and study Gamergate, I think you can see very striking parallels to the tactics, to the strategies, to the um, to the proliferation in, in a way that uh, lots in the video game industry uh, lived through, and now. Um, Lots of people on a, on a much larger scale are living through as well. Now, I don't want to um, misidentify your take or your, your philosophy when it comes to the coverage of video games and, and talking about this medium that we both uh, care about so much. How would you describe your own philosophy when it comes to what you take from video games? Uh, in terms of my own uh, coverage, uh, you know, I, you know, as, as someone that has grown up. Um, and studied and uh, continued sort of practice journalism. I, I think I, I am, you know, I, when people think of journalism, they think of maybe the word truth. And I, I certainly think of that in terms of my own reporting. But I, I think over the years, what it means to discover the truth has changed. You know, when I was in school, that was uh, very much taught like, oh, uh, you know, hear both sides. You know, you want to present, you know, multiple sides of an argument. And then you're sort of allowing the reader to come away with their own takeaway. And that is just that type of reporting I find to be deeply irresponsible at this point. Um, I, I think assuming each argument is being made in good faith is not necessarily true. I don't think that was true in the past, but it's even less true now as um, more and more people have grown to understood how to manipulate that tendency among journalists and reporters to Mm-hmm. want to uh, assume the other person, the other side is arguing good faith. And so I actually think what my role is in finding the truth is to sort through stuff like that. Some of that is um, in illuminating some viewpoints and not others. Mm-hmm. Um, in other ways, it's making my own voice, thoughts, opinions, takeaways uh, more prevalent in the reporting itself um, in which – you know, if I'm going to call something out rather than dance around it, maybe it's just a little easier just to say it like it is. Um, all every reporter has biases. Every reporter has favoritism. Every reporter has sort of a narrative they're trying to weave in, in a piece. And I have found over the years that maybe, maybe it makes more sense to just kind of lay the cards on the table. And if that ends up alienating some folks because they, uh, you know, their takeaway is well because you think X. How can I trust you to interpret or report on why? Well, I'd rather lose that person, but the person that is along the ride with me, who maybe agrees with those, or at least finds um, me to be, uh, you know, credible in in what I'm saying. Um, th- you know, you know where I'm coming from. You know how mm-hmm. I arrived at the the story I reported, um, and so I, that's sort of over the the years, and especially now at White Point, which is uh, certainly uh, the publication in which we have been. Uh, you know, I've, I've written politically and about political subjects for uh, all sorts of publications over the years. Um, but Waypoint is the the first where uh, when I came here with my editor in chief, Austin Walker, you know, in which Waypoint's principles from the beginning were to not only be uh, politically active, but uh, to a certain degree activist in, in which we are going to not just report on things that we think are important, but actually argue for those things. And, and so it's a... Um, there are times when I'm doing, you know, what would be very classical reporting, but there are other times where, you know, I'm, I'm really, I'm going, you know, a couple uh, steps beyond that. 
Where do you see that role of, and I think you, you put it very succinctly there, of activist reporting with a very clear intention and understanding of the principles that are, are backing your philosophy with some of the consumerist uh, tendencies of video game, of the video game industry? Because it is one that I think perhaps can be very difficult to have that uh activist philosophy when so many people that consume these products again see them just as that and the people that are making it the people that are enjoying it where is that line uh for you between treating these things like products and trying to further the ideology you just described well i think part of uh waypoint's founding dna is to just toss out the notion that they are just products there we go. Um, now that, okay. that doesn't mean uh that there aren't times where I will write about a game, talk about a game strictly in terms of mechanics and what I find interesting or whether it's good or bad. Like there are still sort of uh, that stuff still, you know, comes to bear, is important, is something I'm interested in. But uh, I think as a like, you know, one of the things that uh, changed it, you know, in the Waypoint experiment, you know, a couple of years in when it started, our conversation was like, well, what why? Why even do reviews? Like we're just not gonna we're just not gonna do reviews. Like we'll, we'll write uh, critical essays, we'll write you know pieces, we'll have takes, but you know we're just gonna do away with the whole um, review thing. And then you know our thought was well, like review, like the word review is like really powerful. Like it draws people to a discussion of a game in a way that is fundamentally different than just writing essay or you know whatever. Like the term review just carries an enormous amount of weight uh, amongst people. And it's like well, what if we try and like find our way between those two things in which just because we're writing review doesn't mean it can't be because well, let me clarify so like often there's sort of like two sort of waves of criticism for a game there was like the day of or uh, or just before a game is out uh, in which the criticism is largely focused usually on the like is it good is it bad how good is it how bad is it and then in the weeks after you start getting the much more critical dives the much more uh, introspective pieces, the ones that are much more personal, um, that, that fall in line with more what we'd, we would call like, uh, you know, uh, gaming criticism as opposed to, um, you know, just kind of calling balls and strikes of whether a game is good or bad or has a bad frame rate and things like that. And one of the things that, you know, and we are not alone in this, we this is something that's happening in all sorts of publications, was like, well, why don't we just try and push the, you know, push that thing that happens a couple of weeks out and push that into the reviews itself. And so that was, you know, something where, uh, we try and consider the political ramifications around a game's development, you know, whether it's what is it trying to say in its story and its characters and its world building um, to like Red Dead Redemption in which I, you know, I would, we didn't run a traditional review on that because we didn't get the game uh, early enough uh, to spend the time to, to do something like that. We've written about it since, but um, all of our coverage of that game has been informed by the reporting done about the labor conditions on which that game was built. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't mean you can't appreciate the game. doesn't mean you can't find things to like about the game. But the idea that once the genie's out of the bottle, once you know those conditions are what they are, the idea that you could play the game, talk about the game, criticize the game without having that inform your viewpoint, um, we just kind of make that the baseline at Waypoint. Like, that is that is our idea. It's like, we'll just, we'll just tr think about them in that, from that angle 
uh, from day yeah. one and see where that takes us. And building a coalition, or, sure. a coalition of readers around that, right? So mm-hmm. at, at previous publications where I've worked, sometimes when we've leaned in or I leaned in or other writers leaned into some of the more political angles, the response you would get from readers was like, well, this isn't really what I came here for. And, you know, I didn't always felt like that argument held a lot of water, but I also felt like, wouldn't it be interesting if we started a publication where that was just that's it from day one. And if you, it's just take it or leave it from the outset, it's not like something like that won't deviate from how we're talking about games. This just is how we talk about games. And if that's not what you're interested in, then look, there is so, there are so many things you can read, listen and watch that, uh, you know, we'll be happy that you go and find something that speaks more to what you're looking for. But for the people that want to stick around, uh, at white point, like this is where we're coming from. And this is where we're always going to be coming from. Why do you think there is such a, if not large, but loud segment of the the gaming public that have such an issue with the distinctions you just laid out, especially when it comes to a game like Red Dead Redemption 2, where, like you just said, all of your coverage has to keep in mind the conditions that led to the experience that we're having. But there seems to be a very loud, again, if not populist consensus, that that sort of connection has no place in the coverage of video games. If you if you had to try to understand, and I imagine there's been some attempt on your part to try to get why this is such a stopping point for so many people seemingly, why do you think that is? There's probably a lot of reasons that vary based on um, like who you would talk to. But, you know, over the years, like various ones I've heard is, um, you know, by by raising these sorts of issues, by criticizing games for these sorts of issues, uh, you're determining the types of games that will be made next. And for folks that liked them just as like them how they were, like they consider they consider that uh, shuffling of the status quo to be. Uh, uh, sort of a form of of aggression and uh, that bothers them and so like they'd rather just things were the way they were and that uh, you know uh, creators should make art for the, the the for art's sake and that criticism shouldn't be a part of that especially criticism that delves into to culture and talking about sexism racism misogyny um, so there's sort of like a purist angle from some people who like they they like that it's just graphics sound gameplay replayability is it worth you know my sixty dollars um, and and find things like that to be sort of sort of a front um, and you know I it kind of runs the the spectrum from there. Some people are just trolling, right? Like some people know that by raising those issues, you care about those issues, and so by telling you know by by raising hackles about that in your direction, you know you're you're likely to 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 bother that person um, as as a result. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I've, <laughs> I've heard the gamut at this point. I, I think honestly, for, for the most part, I try and just tune it out because I think I've established uh, sort of enough of rapport with my audience and, and the audience that Waypoint has built that it's like those, those people aren't our audience. And so I'm not that concerned if they have a problem with it. Well, that yeah, that kind of leads to my next take here. Is the goal really to 
change the mind of game players who, like, for instance, revel in the hundreds of videos of the different ways you can kill the suffragette in Red Dead Redemption 2? Is it about making them understand that maybe there's, you know, a humanistic value to the creation of these games? Or is it more about highlighting and finding those people that are already from the perspective and an understanding that certain humanism is in all of these games and should be highlighted from your perspective uh what is your strategy yeah i think it's more about highlighting yeah. what is there and often what isn't there rather than trying to convince someone of of your argument i think maybe some of that naturally happens i've heard from all sorts of folks over the years who have uh written uh to tell me that you know things that i've said things that i've been a part of like have influenced how they've thought about things and how 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 their own values and interpretations of, of games and and this whole sort of uh, panoply of, of subjects has, has changed over the years but you know that's a minority um and i can't be concerned about that too much because i think there is more worth in 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 highlighting the things that we value and find important than it is in hoping the YouTube commenter comes around and, you know, sees sees my viewpoint. And I think, like, part of that is linked up with, uh, you know, the question you asked previously um, is often people confuse uh, sort of like the, the objective of criticism or that the, the impact of criticism is saying that you are wrong for feeling differently. Um, or that if I, let's say you, you accuse a game um, or claim a game has racist or sexist elements if you like that thing you by proxy are then racist and sexist i think there i think there is a uh based on the reaction i've seen over the years there is a non-insignificant amount of people who take criticism from those angles that way and that by uh criticizing the thing they enjoy especially when it seems like it may reflect on their own personal values especially when that seems like to them, it is in contrast with their own viewpoints. Uh, that is seen as an attack. When I don't, uh, there I I'm you know I mention this all the time. I'm a huge uh, horror movie buff, and if <laughs> if my if my enjoyment of those films and the problems those films have were immediately reflective on uh, me, uh, it were a value judgment of myself, like I would be in real trouble because horror movies have all sorts of problems um, in all sorts of different directions. But uh, I, I know that I can separate those two things and that I can find sexist elements of revenge fantasy horror subgenres while also knowing that that doesn't necessarily that's that's not what I'm here for. I can critique the work while also appreciating the work for different reasons. And I, I think there's a segment of audiences who uh they can't separate those two things and so when when you attack the game as a value judgment then you are you know by proxy attacking their values even if that is often or at least in my case not necessarily the the goal of the critic yeah so if you're listening right now and there's a good chance that you are and you disagree vehemently with what patrick and i are saying here the goal is not to argue with you the goal is just this is information this is a take and not everything is meant to be I guess, adversarial in in its nature. And if it's taken that way, that is uh, not exactly your intention, correct? Yeah, no, I think that's 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 definitely right. 
But do you believe there is a sense of um, responsibility to the progression of the uh, the medium as a whole? Because from what I am getting here, your philosophy really speaks to people that believe in uh, similar values that are considered more humanistic, maybe more progressive going forward, though, to make sure that this kind of way that the medium grows is more reflected in its growth. Is there responsibility to be adversarial to get there or is your role more on the sides just kind of hoping that video games become more representative, that unionization is something that we see more in video game development? What is your role to actually make the change happen? No, I, I think there it is certainly to be uh, adversarial. I think that is, you know, often the role of of any journalist or, or serious critic is to, uh, you know, it's you know, there's a difference between adversarial and being, you know, a jerk. Um, you know, there are often fine lines between those things. But you know, uh, like you know, Waypoint, you know, has constantly sort of criticized the video game industry for uh, its precarious uh, treatment of of labor, the lack of unionization. Um, you know, one of the things we ran a piece uh, out of E3 this year in which we uh, every single, almost every interview that we conducted, we made sure to ask them how they felt about unionization efforts and crunch um, and compiled all those questions uh, and put them together in a single sort of list to kind of give like a broad spectrum of like this goes from, you know, the head of Nintendo, Reggie fils to like a tiny two-person developer. And like here's kind of, you know, what we got out of E3 by asking a wide range of developers these questions. And what was, uh, you know, fascinating was along the way what what companies were ill-prepared to have an answer, what um, companies wanted to go off the record or said that wasn't, you know, sort of part of the agreement of the interview. Um, And I, like, my hope is that the fact that some folks weren't prepared with some answer, even if it wasn't just some sort of stock answer that didn't actually uh, amount to anything, the lack of a stock answer means that in the preparation for those interviews, it never came up. It never came up that... Uh, Because when developers get ready for these big press tours, they are most of the time, especially on the bigger budget games, they are brought aside. They are often told, like, here's what we expect from this uh, a journalist. Like, this, these are the kind of topics they talk uh, they talk about. Um, the, these are the kind of questions you should be ready to hear about. And then so you kind of have, like, stock answers that you can riff on so you don't get surprised or stumble over your words. And the fact that there were so many companies that uh, were not even prepared for a labor or unionization question um, struck us as odd and interesting. And so I will – I think I've said this before where I will take it as a compliment – when we do that story next year that we get stock boring answers that are rehearsed because at the very least we have forced them to spend the time thinking about it behind the scenes to come up with an answer. Now that doesn't change labor conditions, but um, I, you got to start somewhere. You got to start, you know, uh, pressing from, from the angles of power um, that you have. And so, yeah, I mean, that's like a, a long uh, way of sort of spelling out that I, I think it is, uh, it is our role to be adversarial, but that can mean all sorts of different things, right? That can mean Jason Schreier at Kotaku writing a lengthy piece about the labor conditions at Rockstar Games. Like, that is adversarial in the sense that it's not the story that Rockstar wants to tell about their, you know, billion-dollar video game launch, but uh, it is an important story to be told in the larger tapestry of what it means to make consume and appreciate video games as a medium and so it's adversarial but it is in pursuit of 
you know, this larger truth about how we understand and appreciate the the medium. The one thing I, I really don't understand is the blowback from so many. Again, it could be just noise versus actual representation, but it seems like there's a lot of people that play games that very loudly don't want to hear about the unionization side. And it seems like even if you are a neocon, the idea of subverting through journalism major corporations would seem at least a little bit compelling. Again, advocacy for the ones that are not listening to you. You know, why do you think this is such an issue that... uh, is a sticking point for so many, again, people or very loud people that play video games. Well, there are all sorts of strange contradictions amongst uh, audiences like that. Like, for example, uh, you know, in 2018, 2017, like the the drumbeat over loot boxes and how this is mm-hmm. gambling and how this is exploiting video game fans and like this is terrible. The FTC needs to look into it. Like other countries, you know, every time there's a different country saying they're going to investigate whether uh, loot boxes are gambling, like it shoots to the top of Reddit and all other sort of social platforms. It's like yes, like you know, for the player. Um, mm-hmm. But when it comes to like unionization and labor conditions. Uh, you know, oh, I hate, you know, mm, like maybe that's, you know, maybe they're just doing their best. Like maybe that's just a step too far. And I think that is often uh, less argued in bad faith as much as it's it's a sort of a natural tendency toward like a you-centric philosophy, which is that, uh, you know, the artist working 90 hours for six months straight, I mean – that doesn't affect you. I mean, it does. I mean, it should. You should have empathy for that person. Like, it should affect you. They don't know my like, struggles. They don't know the hard job right. that I have. Yeah. Right. Um, whereas, like, They make boxes, video games. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, like, whereas Loot Box is, like, a very personal, like, that is that is you. That is you versus the corporation. And especially, you know, when you've got big companies like EA, who, you know, for years and years and years was voted, like, the worst company in America over companies like ExxonMobil. Like, like, it goes to show, uh, like, the moment that we are, like, putting on this this uh, pedestal of evil, a video game company that I'm sure has, you know, committed wrongs and, and has problems, but, like, versus, like, a multinational, like, <laughs> oil baron. Yeah. I don't think uh, there's <laughs> suicide nets at EA. Like, I don't <laughs> no. think they have suicide nets at last check. <laughs> so, I just, I, th- I think that often, I mean, on one hand, it reflects sort of the concentrated power of video game fans and their abilities to sort of, you know, manipulate, you know, different parts of the internet to sort of make a point. Um, But often I think that uh, uh, has to do with just sort of like what is personally affecting you. And it is tied into a larger point from before about the Gamergate stuff is like, well, okay, so, I mean, all that labor stuff is pretty bad, but like I really want Red Dead Redemption 2. (laughs) So it's like if we do, if, if they don't work those hours and I don't get that game, like, was it all worth it? Um, you know, I think, you know, from Waypoint's perspective, from our perspective, from labor sort of advocates perspective, it's like, well, I mean, you could probably still make that game. It just might have taken a little longer or you would have just hired more people or like paid them better over time. I mean, there is, you know, I, I think, you know, what I would, would push back on is the notion that those two goals are at odds with one another. Um, I mean, maybe it is the case that it is it is actually genuinely unethical and untenable to make certain types of games if we want to value labor and and human conditions to the level that that we should um but i think it's probably more likely that it just requires a readjustment of priorities and values and how that how the actual process of production is is handled as opposed to like a, a an eradication of 
these big budget video games, which I, as much as anyone, like playing as well. Mm -hmm. We I talked a lot about the unionization side of the development of video games. I think one other, the other side of that coin that can be unfortunately very divisive for people that enjoy games is the idea of representation of the sort of characters that are on screen and the sort of people that are building those characters for games. Uh, for you personally, why is that something that you have advocated for and is important to you for when you play a game that there are kind of different stories and different people telling those stories? I mean, a lot of it has to do with the stories I've heard from other people, honestly. Um, I mean, certainly it's a it's an important value for myself, but like in it's a it's well, I guess it's it's more of a principle, but like that principle is informed by reading about and hearing about how powerful that has been for folks on the margins, um, uh, people of color, um, you know, sort of the whole spectrum of folks who are not normally represented and seen in video games. And so I consider part of my job to be an advocate for those viewpoints. I think that is only bolstered by sort of the privilege of being like, you know, one of the few people that gets to write about this stuff is in a, a powerful position where I wake up every day and I can spend my time writing reporting on more or less anything. And so I consider it to be like, you know, a moral failing if I'm not considering the viewpoints and thoughts and feelings of others, and especially those whose voices are most often not heard or, or given a chance. And so, uh, you know, other than just I like seeing my video games represent the world that I walk around in. Like, I think that's that's just like a pretty fair, simple uh, a way to look at it. Um, it is also trying to leverage the uh, responsibility I have to advocate for the people uh, who love video games, who are interested in video games, and often so their thoughts and feelings are not always as considered. And so if I can be in a position to elevate that, that seems like a pretty all right thing to do. And again, I'm going to get you to advocate or try to explain away the groups of people, numerous or, or loud, that seem to have an issue with any sort of attention to representation whatsoever within video games. Is it just, in, in your opinion, you know, uh, bold-faced racism, or is there anything there that is multifaceted because I think with the unionization issue you've explained the contradictions that people can understand it is very hard for me to understand in any way someone that has an issue with representation I the line you will hear over and over um, from a lot of folks over the years is don't dict is artistic purity is don't dictate to creators how they should create and so if they want to make if if all video games just happen to have you know straight white dudes because that's what the straight white dudes who are making those games want to make then that's you know that should be it like don't change the race of that character to uh cater to an audience like don't change it because it's the the right thing to do it's like no it's all about artistic purity it is about whatever the artist whatever came out of their brain and went into the world uh that is what should you know go onto the page that's what should go into the video game i mean i think a certain number of people a fair number of people are are arguing that in good faith even if i like vehemently disagree with the notion of that um uh, you know all art especially consumerist art you know like <laughs> video <Yeah>. games are not <laughs> like i mean there are video games that are are made 
uh, purely for artistic and non-commercial purposes, but that is not the video games we're talking about here. Like, um, mm-hmm. um, most video games where are, are a, a, a pseudo commercial artistic endeavor with compromise compromises made, um, along the way that are all in service of something else that does not exactly what the creator themselves wanted. And I think that assumes also that there isn't like an audience that wants that. Like if you're making, if you're making video games for an audience, you might want to consider who that audience is and, uh, you know, reflecting that in the diversity and representation of the characters and storytelling, uh, I think makes uh, a lot of sense to me. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's like anything else. Like the status quo is comfortable to people. Mm-hmm. They like things the way they are. Uh, things were just fine. Like, why do we need to change things? Um, change is scary. Um, but uh, it's... I, you, I, this, this is kind of just something that comes up over and over again where that the the notion that change is scary is not just reflected in sort of sharing that opinion. I think, you know, what's what's been so troubling, you know, from Gamergate on and even long before Gamergate is how that is expressed. It is not just, oh, I, it's not just I, I want the art to be the art and I want to re- respect the artist. It's, it's not them. just I'm going to play this and it's okay, but I don't like this. It's very, yeah, right. it, they're well, pushing it's, it's, it forward. It's, when, it's when it elevates to harassment mm-hmm. and targeting and uh, sharing a, a, a contradictory or a different opinion or a thought on how it should or could be um, then escalates beyond just, well, we just we just disagree. Um, yeah. It, it, it then becomes, uh, you know, sort of a motivating uh, impulse to attack and and hurt other people, um, you know. Yeah. Well, where do you see the, the extension of that that thought to the idea of representation as a gamer? A lot of the rhetoric that I hear is tied into this notion of what a gamer is. Usually it's tied in with uncritical thought of the games that you experience, that if you have any of the analysis that you've been talking about here for the last 30 minutes, then you're not adhering to that kind of ideology of what it means to be a gamer. What do you think about that idea of representation, that people cling to the notion of I am a gamer and that means this? Well, I mean, I think the uh, the term gamer is kind of dangerous because there's a lot of loaded politics and like, what is it? What does that mean? Like, if you start once you start to unwrap what it means to be a gamer beyond just well, it's just a fancy you know unique term to describe someone that really likes video games and it has now become part of their identity. I mean, I think that in itself is is dangerous to start. Um, you know, I think. Uh, People are movie fans and like, you know, uh, uh, book nerds. But, I you know, gamer has a certain hold far beyond any of those. And I, th- I think the notion that when anything, almost anything becomes so wrapped up in your identity, that can be uh, really dangerous, especially when the, the notion, the term gamer, like often means like you are the most important thing in the world. You are all powerful. You are the only one that matters. You are going to save everything. You, 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 you. Like that is what the term gamer is is loaded with. And so the the notion that that then extends to folks who self-identify and are pr- like proud, like I'm a gamer, but like I don't go around using that term. Like if, if someone was to call me a gamer, like, yeah, sure. Like, yeah, I, I video games are part of my uh, integral part of my life. Like, sure, I'm a gamer. But then the moment when you're like, I'm gamer and I'm proud like it starts to become something a little bit 
different, maybe something a little more insidious or maybe something that you haven't like fully unpacked why this thing has become. It is odd, the distinction between what you brought up there, that people are, like you said, book nerds and movie nerds, but when they're not necessarily, there isn't the gamer's uh, signification for those sorts of mediums. Why do you think that is? Because like you said, it can be very exclusionary and lead to some, some pretty troubling things that speak of the individual themselves. I mean, hard to say. I mean, I don't know if, you know, maybe some of that is because like for a long period of time, you know, the video games and the act of playing them was like a very isolating solo experience. And like, so maybe that like appeals to a certain type of person that then as a result of spending so much time with something, you begin to identify and internalize it in a way that goes beyond just part of a, a, a you know, a, a, a pantheon of things that you are interested in. It becomes like sort of singular because um, I think that's often we're talking about when the, the, the notion of gamer becomes dangerous um, or at least at uh, the very least toxic is like when it becomes like singular, like th- that is what you are, like you uh, what you are is a gamer. Um, and it also it's, you know, it's it's emboldened by the fact that the video game industry propagates these terms like you know everything the, the the marketing of video games the marketing towards people that like video games is i mean i think you know playstation's uh slogan right now is like power to the player and like all their commercials are like very fun and goofy and uh, often like reflect the diversity of of players but uh you know taken as a whole like the the history of video games and the history of video game marketing like it is very much about you are the most important person in the world you are the gamer um, and I don't think it's surprising that some people could take and internalize that in ways that go uh, beyond um, maybe what the marketing originally intended. Well, that solipsism really leads me to this huge phenomenon that's happened, I think, in the last few years since we spoke. The rise of the, and they wouldn't want to be identified that way, but the uh, YouTube video game journalist. The idea that there is this huge wave of very exclusionary individuals that, that want to talk about games and are seen as adversarial to people like you, people like Jason Shear, people that are, are trying to advocate in more traditional mediums. What is your take on kind of that rise of uh, this new way that we talk about video games? Well, like on a, like a larger level, like I inc- I'm excited by the notion of new people coming mm-hmm. in and having new ideas. I've flirted and played around with uh, ways of doing reporting in video form on sort of my own personal YouTube channel just because uh, I don't know how to do anything else. And so if I <laughs> want to be doing this in like 10, 15 years, if all the money is, is yeah. in video for some reason, then I should be thinking about where the audience is. Um, you know, if I'm trying to criticize eucentric uh, philosophies, then uh, if, the, you know, if the audience is going somewhere else, then maybe I should think about where that audience is going and how I can uh, integrate my work into different formats and, and mediums. You know, I that's I started as someone that did uh, mostly written work. I have gotten into a lot of podcasting, and then I also do sorts of video stuff. So I've you know uh, my career has taken me in different directions as sort of the expressiveness of criticism and uh, commentary and reporting has uh, morphed out into other uh, directions uh, as well. I mean, but yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like you maybe more are touching on sort of the undercurrent of uh, sort of like pushing back on 
I mean, I think a little bit what you're you're talking about is is not dissimilar to sort of the just the general of kind of medium uh, media yeah. changes that are happening. I just found that it's very interesting that it's happening and maybe happened first in some ways within the video game realm and extended to the distrust of just general uh, media representation politically, uh, scientifically, and I, I think there is a large percentage of people that are introduced and get their information from. Um, kind of bad faith individuals that are working and representing themselves as an alternative to someone like you. Yeah, I mean, uh, part of this is uh, a critique of sort of YouTube's yes, uh, yeah, so monetization model and how they prioritize things. Like negative, negative things, hate uh, is better for clicks. I mean, it's better for clicks in general, but like especially on YouTube. <coughs> Excuse me. It is better to be against something than for something. You're going to get a lot more attention grinding against something than you are celebrating something. Um, it's not universally true, but it's like almost universally true uh, to the point that I'm not surprised that there is a whole cottage industry trying to do takedowns and criticisms and um, just generally pushing back. Um, people like to be the victim and like there's, there's going to be a YouTube creator that's going to be happy to tell you you are the victim, you are wrong, like you shouldn't rethink this. Actually, you are right, and I that all gets wrapped up back in this sort of like ur gamer sort of philosophy. Um, and I think the there are so many great things that have come from the proliferation of media in which lots of different voices can get out there without having to go through various gatekeepers that like de de uh, determine you are important enough to be heard and on a platform. At the same time, it also means like you can also find whatever echo chamber you want that is going to make you feel good, like fit within your existing worldview. Um, and I think that plays into a lot of this, which is just uh, you have angry gamer sentiment and then it's not hard to find a video that's going to help you pound the table uh, and like you are right that person is wrong they're bad um, and then you know thousands of comments that mm -hmm. uh, all fit in the same direction and that doesn't considering the work that, that you do and and how important this is to you that movement does that worry you at all I mean as to where this is going I mean it definitely uh, yeah it makes me worry that there are countless people who are growing up on YouTube on Twitch and that their first interactions with the media are and commentary and observations are from, you know, that angle. Like it's just easy to go down some really toxic rabbit holes on YouTube and their algorithm definitely uh, encourages that. And YouTube's uh, slow embrace of actually moderating their platform in any meaningful way has only made this uh, a lot worse. <coughs> um, but yeah, it, I mean, I yeah, I think about this a lot with, uh, you know, now that I'm a father of a, of a two and a half year old, like, you know, YouTube terrifies me because it like, <laughs> seems like it takes three clicks and all of a sudden you're watching a Nazi propaganda uh, propaganda video. Um, but yeah, it, it, it does worry me because, you know, if you grow up with an anti-media bias, uh, that's, you know, it's it takes a long time to grow up to a place where you can start sort of unpacking your own thoughts, feelings and guiding your way out of there. And so if we have whole generations of players that are coming up uh, through YouTube, you know, that, you know, certainly raises the specter of, of its own set of problems. And I guess for me, all I can really do is kind of keep calling BS where I can and and kind of just 
keep doing my own work and that's sort of all I can do. Like I can't take down the YouTube infrastructure <laughs> um, as much as I might like sometimes. But, uh, you know, at this point I kind of just, I have my audience, I, I have my work, uh, I try and do the best work that I can and that's, I kind of control what I can control and um, kind of t- take my swings where I think they're going to land and, and try and make things better for for the most amount of people. Well, that that advocacy, I think, is uh, something that is more and more needed as many people, many young kids that are introduced to the world of video games through Fortnite are now realizing through the kind of that rabbit hole of of YouTube that this person that's making, you know, Fortnite's uh, collectibles videos leads them down to some very regressive views on women on representation you were speaking personally as a father that this worries you i want to know more of you professionally you know do you think that that is actually a problem because there is there is a tendency when any major media outlet is talking about video games to not represent it correctly professionally do you think that is a problem and what can people do well, like on YouTube, you know, things like that are, are distressing because it's so, uh, yeah, on one hand, it's never been easier to put up just infinite amounts of minutes of you talking over a game or talking about a game. Um, and it's never been harder to understand what's in all of that. You know, if a an article that would take you 45 minutes to read is different than a video that would take you 45 minutes to watch. Um just by the sheer act of being able, you can't really search a video in the way that you can search an article. And so, you know, I think, you know, what I've written about in the past, you know, where I've heard from parents and and, and other folks that uh, are, you know, uh, older brothers, older sisters that uh, have uh, uh, people younger than them that are kind of like in these different ecosystems and where you can watch one video of a creator where it is like, as you say, it is just like, you know, here's how to do blank, blank, blank in blah, blah, blah. And uh, then there's like another, then they do a live stream and then all of a sudden they're like, you know, getting extremely racist and, and sexist and misogynistic. It's like, how do you keep track of all that stuff? Um, and, and you can't, like that is the the scary part. Like it is really difficult to imagine a world where you can fully vet uh, those things because I can't, there was some YouTube creator I wrote about this year or last year, I, I can't remember because I wrote about Unfortunately, a couple of them at this point, um, but it was this exact problem where uh, they were extremely funny and that's what attracted uh, a lot of people to them in the first place. And then all of a sudden it was like some really questionable, weird, racist stuff happening where it's like, okay, well, how, can I separate these two things? Like, or does this mean I leave this person behind? What do I think about now this suddenly throws into question all the different creators that, you know, I'm following, other people are following. It's it's a really complicated sort of uh, ecosystem um, that I don't expect to get much easier. If anything, I expect it to get more complicated as it just becomes easier and easier to make more and more content. It is a little bit grim, but I, I did want to thank you, Patrick, for uh, taking the time to, to chat with me about your work. <laughs> and uh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I, I think it is important. Um, I think things are getting better. Like I would well, say that's, this. Well, that's that's like- what I wanted to leave it off with. Like we, we last time I spoke with you, it was the grips of Gamergate. We've seen what's happened politically in the United States since then. We've talked a lot about the pushback against representation, the the pitfalls of having a more open source system with people no longer behind gate. Keepers, but now there's racist possibly behind every corner. You know, wh- <laughs> how, how do you be optimistic as you look at this medium 
and new people are getting into it. I, is there any optimism to be found and how do you cultivate that? Your final your final message to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do think things are getting better. It just ha- change happens very slowly over a long period of time. It, it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen over the course of a year. It happens over the course of, you know, decades, generations. And that progress is slow and frustrating. But, you know, I take solace and even, you know, in the last... 10 years, the fact that more and more places are openly having this discussion, even if it doesn't necessarily lead to the outcome that is desired, um, the fact that, you know, there's been a mainstreaming of talking about racism and sexism, misogyny, labor, unionization, like that's, those words did not come up Mm -hmm. 10 years ago in newsrooms that I was, I was working in. Now those are regular topics at like any major serious outlets so like in, in in terms of where like the where the discussion has gone uh i, I i'm really encouraged by that and games are getting like far more diverse and interesting you know we are seeing you know gay characters in video games we are seeing trans characters in video games we are seeing black characters in video games and and not just on the margins they are they are front and center um that stuff takes time. It takes time for the creators that want to tell those stories to get into the actual ecosystem in order to make them. It takes time for them to become influential and powerful enough to make the decisions that keeps that stuff prioritized and valued. Um, all that stuff takes time. Um, but uh, I mean, even in the the Red Dead Redemption uh, sort of labor discussion, uh, I remember when I knew stories were coming out about that, I was taking bets that that Rockstar Games would not even respond to it. Um, and instead, they were doing full-fledged interviews with all sorts of outlets discussing how they were trying to do things better, how they disagreed with these parts of the, the stories, and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, if the most powerful video game company in the world feels like they have to respond to this because it's that important, that's progress. It's not... It doesn't stop that artist from working 90 hours. It doesn't stop that programmer from being working how many months so that the horse testicles can grow <laughs> and uh, shrink based on the, the temperature, yeah. even though you will never actually see that meaningfully in the game while you're playing. Um, but it's it brought them to the table <coughs> to discuss it, and that is a measure of progress. And I so think you have to take solace in the small steps. You have to take solace in... Uh, in the little things that that are signs of progress, and then I think it's always important to like look back and well, how were things a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago? I think you'll end up finding that more progress has been made than might seem in the present. Uh, not as much as you would have liked, but if anything, that should just encourage you to you know you know pick up uh, and start climbing the mountain to to push the rock up a little bit more. Patrick Klepek, senior reporter at Waypoint, talking today about essentially the state of games and how far we've come and how far we still have to go. Patrick, I'll talk to you again in a couple of years. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thank you again.